Hello there and welcome to Regulate Tech. Uh, this is the second episode of 2022 and we are going to really speak in macro terms. This episode is devoted to the question about the tech lash. What is it? Is it still a thing? Is it, was it so 2021? Um, what are the structures underlying it? What are the trends in it? How can we Think about it as tech policy experts, just generally getting a sense of it's it's almost like trying to f- trying to figure out the vibe. What's the vibe in the public debate now? What do you think about the tech clash, Richard? Yeah, I'm mean, just going. Uh, lots of lots of people sort of rode in un, under or behind this banner. I think it was actually coined by the Economist originally, um, and I think it does capture something really quite profound, which is that you know. Uh, Historically, as it were, you, 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 there was a sort of general assumption that a new technology coming into a sector was going to improve it. And, and uh, technology sort of rode on the back of that notion for, for many years. And, and people would sort of question, you know, the, the specifics of how a technology was being introduced. But I think that's underlying assumption that the new thing was better than the old thing was there. And the tech lash, in a sense, sort of says, I mean, literally the, the sort of notion of a backlash is, yeah, yeah, well, now we've looked again at all of those claims you made. And we think the new thing is actually worse than the old thing. And that's really quite a profound and quite an extraordinary shift. And, and the classic example, I think, would be around news media. Uh, so perhaps no surprise that the term was coined by a news media outlet themselves. But, you know, in news media, uh, uh, it's not just, you know, people saying, "Well, this new digital stuff is is sort of uh, uh, needs a little bit of trimming at the edges in order to to be as good as the old uh, kind of paper stuff that we had." It's much more saying, "Look, like internet technology-driven news is almost like inherently worse and worse for society, and, and kind of must be stopped." in favor of a more traditional approach to, to news gathering and news distribution. So that's quite a, I think, a significant shift that we went from, let's say, a sort of almost underlying assumption that we, people like us who worked on the tech side of things, could could rely on to an extent that, look, you know, bit of disruption along the way, but the new stuff is going to be better long run, to a position in which now people are actually saying quite seriously, look, the new stuff may be worse and maybe we need to not you know, move forward in that direction at all, not innovate. We've got to kind of undo the innovation and go back to status quo ante. Yeah. That, that, one way to think about this that, I, that that occurs to me is that you could say that, you know, in different periods of history, uh, the notion of social and technological progress have been synonymous. They've been tightly coupled. If you have technological progress, you're also going to get social progress. Technological progress underpins drives sort of supports social progress and and then there are other periods of history and time and, and i think we're sort of in one of those periods now where where the coupling between the two is really weak or even loose so that social progress and technological progress are seen as not necessarily implying each other and perhaps even to your point being inverse so we can only get social progress if we slow down technological progress or even reverse it i think that's that's really interesting i think you're right to point to news media because i do think that at some point or at some level at least speech is a really good example of this in most people's minds where we used to think that if there's more speech there's more democracy yeah right more speech more democracy if you get tons of technology that produce tons of speech you get more democracy 
that thought, that the sort of relationship between speech and democracy is a linear one, I think is almost completely gone from the public debate now. I think that you're much more likely to find people who say that speech is good, but it depends on what speech and it depends on how much and it depends on who is speaking. And so there's like a qualification for, for the utility of speech in democracy that is also quite interesting to think about. And I think this decoupling of technological and social progress, this notion of more is not necessarily better, your point about the new thing not being better than the old thing, those are all components in the tech clash that that sort of lead to a much more critical perspective on technology that can be quite healthy, but can also end up being um, a sort of default assumption that technological progress erodes social progress. Yes, uh, that's right. And, and um, I mean, the way it's being framed is it's tech versus society. And it's just literally framed that way. And, and people might qualify that and say, well, it's big tech. It's not all tech. We quite like the technology. We just don't like, you know, the however you want to use the acronym, the FANGs or the uh, whatever acronym you use for these big companies, the Facebooks, the Apple. Oh, is that going to be MANGs now, hasn't it? Met- Meta, Apple. Uh, oh, you're right, MANGs. Uh, yeah, anyway, so, uh, and uh, actually the biggest beast of them all, Microsoft, which we often <laughs> don't talk about in the same way. Um, yeah. uh, so, 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 so there's some sort of crazy alphabet soup that involves uh, several M's and A's and N's and G's. Uh, so people are saying, look, no, it's them, in a sense, that are against society, not tech. But I, uh, that, I, to a certain extent, would question. I mean, I think some of the issues that people have, for example, around you know, the ability of, of people to distribute um, what they regard as sort of uh, fake news, false misinformation, however you want to describe it, but stuff that is socially damaging uh, uh, because it's outside of the, the sort of mainstream news narrative and is is uh, false and incorrect and misleading, you know, that's, that is actually a, a function of the technology. It's not a function of the, the big tech companies. It's a function of the internet and a, a small... Uh, social media provider and social media provider at any level uh, is just as capable of distributing that kind of content. So, so in a sense, I think it is um, tech v society, not just big tech v society. Uh, it, it's curious what you say about yeah, speech as being at the cutting edge. I, I heard somebody last week say, um, you know, we, we can't call ourselves a democracy if fake news and misinformation is allowed to circulate freely. And I have to say, I thought we can't call ourselves a democracy unless people are able to circulate fake news and misinformation to an extent. I mean, we can worry about it, but actually the definition of democracy is that the government doesn't control speech. Uh, the, the, the new, you know, in, in a country where the news media are entirely controlled by government and people are not able to circulate anything else, I'd argue that isn't a democracy. So again, it's really interesting how far we've gone to the point where people can say, look, you know, in order for us to declare ourselves a progressive society, a democracy, we have to clamp down on speech. Uh, really yeah. curious place that we sort of ended up. And I think there are two things in there that I'd like to unpick. The, the, the first is that I think you're right to make this distinction between technology company and technology. I actually think that TechLash sort of operates on three different levels. So the first is our skepticism around technology at large. Is it really good for us? And that skepticism is not new. It sort of, it dates back to Plato saying that writing is not a good thing because people won't remember what they write. And if they don't remember, they will just parrot it. And that's not real wisdom. So that kind of skepticism around technology, again, comes and flows in ebbs and, and uh, waves. And so I think that's that's one core part of it. And, and it's really interesting to think about the tech clash 
against technology overall, uh, because I think that's where we find some of the the more interesting tensions about technology being soulless, diminishing our human value, etc. And then there's like this other level, which is the technology industry, where you talk about, as you said, either it's an acronym or it's just the technology industry at large not paying their taxes, or it's the technology technology industry becoming too powerful, you know, without quantifying power. And then it's the individual companies at the at the sort of uh, the third level where you have a specific company that you don't like. You pick one out and you say that this company is is far too large and is not treating its small um, customers in a good way, or this company is influencing the the public. And it's and it's important if you're analyzing this as a policy person, you're thinking about you have to figure out where in this hierarchy is your problem located. If if what's happening here is really that people are increasingly skeptical about the ability of technology to to sort of deepen our human values or that it's uh, and it's in some way sort of opposite to our human values then that's a very different problem from people think you're doing the wrong thing as an industry or the wrong thing as a company so orienting it is 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 kind of i think it's really important i think and and the other thing to to unpick and sort of to 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 connect to and what you say is this notion of of you know we, we can't have a democracy with with fake news it's there's this there's this other distinction that i find really interesting that that is the you have your right to speech but you don't have your right to reach yeah um, and that's there's something in that that i think really uh, echoes of what you just said if you have the right to speech but you have no right to reach. What does that really mean? And and why wouldn't you have the right to reach that's available to you? And how do you think about that? It's like there's there's this decoupling is so clear in that case where sort of the, the social progress is speech. The technological progress is reach. And yes. they're not the same. And we want one, but we do not want the other. And it's that sort of decoupling acting on even in academic discourse in a really interesting way, I find. Yeah, so there is a lot. I mean, again, arguably, you can say, well, we're still a democracy because people can say nonsense, misinformation, whatever they want to say. <laughs> but but we are going to, what we're doing, and actually you look at the direction of the legislation, it's saying government wants to have more control over the levers of reach over the technology, over the technology companies. And that's explicit in the legislation that we're seeing coming forward in the UK's online safety bill and the EU's Digital Services Act. It's, it's very clearly regulators wanting to get hold of uh, the levers of reach or at least have more say over them. Uh, it's usually under the banner of algorithms. We must, we must, you know, be able to uh, uh, address the challenge around algorithms. And that, but that is essentially a sort of reach intervention. And so I guess you can square it and say, look, in a democracy, people, uh, it's still a democracy. We've still got freedom of expression because people can say the nonsense. Um, but, but we, the authorities are going to intervene to make sure that 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 we try and control how that nonsense gets out there and and is read by other people uh which itself has a whole range of issues you know involved from a democratic perspective also from a, a technical perspective because often uh, uh, these algorithmic engines are working on uh, signals that come from individuals individuals choosing to share and distribute content and now we're saying we're going to override those signals with some other uh, criteria yeah, huge debate there but it's an interesting space where where the assumption in the sense uh, original assumption was you know we are in a much better place if we have more democratic media in uh, in inverted commas where individuals are choosing what rises to prominence uh, and the algorithms are based on that. 
uh, that was the sort of revolutionary notion, the promise of all this technology. And we've kind of rode all the way back to say, well, no, 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 uh, there must be some kind of central control over what gets the reach uh, and that allowing, uh, if I can describe it in this way, too democratic, too open a, a mechanism for a reach to be determined is actually harmful for society. Uh, and so we're sort of moving off in a different direction. Um, but I'm just interested, I'm just thinking as we're, we're discussing that like, there are perhaps two two other technologies and, and technical revolutions that we sort of had in the past that might be uh, interesting analogs here for us to think about. One is cars, <laughs> where, you know, I think we're in a phase now where we're saying uh, that there's significant harm being caused by the internal combustion and automotive industry. But I'm not sure we'd go all the way back to saying, well, I wish, you know, the 21st century, in a sense, was the century of the car and the 20 seconds or the the internal combustion engine car should be explicit 22nd century is going to be the century in which we get rid of internal combustion engines for most purposes and we move on to other forms of of energy usage like electricity you know and and the argument there again is that this thing was was great from one point of view but from another point of view has caused incredible damage potentially catastrophic damage to the planet interesting question would we go all the way back now and say you know if only we'd stop this technology of the internal combustion engine early on uh we as society would have been in a much better place i think that's one sort of interesting analog the other one I think about it is nuclear uh where again in nuclear uh, it's always delicate we're comparing technology with nuclear industry but in the nuclear industry there was no <laughs> doubt there there were good and bad uses of nuclear and that and the debate raged didn't it to say you know could you have the good side of this new technology which would be the power without the bad side which is the both the the waste that comes from the power generation but also very very acutely the the fact that it was often tied into an arms industry and and the same uh, mechanisms we're being used to produce these sort of weapons of mass destruction. So again, two two twenty first century technologies, twentieth twentieth century technologies rather, two twentieth century technologies uh, that were adopted in different ways. The car just spread like the internal combustion engine spread like wildfire. Everybody adopted it, a massive social effect. Nuclear, where people did that, actually call a halt quite soon after it. Uh, was developed as a technology it wasn't allowed to spread like wildfire it was very very closely managed and remains closely managed to this day yeah i think it's interesting because those are examples that are often cited i do think that nuclear had an enormous impact on our understanding of technology as such suddenly we i mean it was a it was a pivotal point in human history where we suddenly were able to develop a technology that could end us (laughs) <laughs> permanently and i remember i mean a lot of the technology criticism that we see today actually has its roots in technology criticism that was written in the shadow of the mushroom clouds of hiroshima and nagasaki and i think if you look at a guy like jacques elul for example who is one of these great technology critics he he sort of starts from a position of this is stuff that humans should not be involved with because we are making ourselves into to either machines or into gods and neither is is conducive to a healthy civilization that's that's nuclear technology talking that's sort of the kind of technology criticism that grew from i think the 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 second world war use of our atomic weapons so there is a there's a lot in there but there's there's also a lot of differences of course between nuclear technology and information technology um not least the fact that that nuclear technology can be controlled in a way that information technology cannot because it's it's sort of dependent on certain very um, difficult to get raw materials and uh, you have to 
work with those in order to get them into a place where they're useful, etc. But I, I think that the, the sort of the new, we should never forget when we analyze the tech clash that there is actually a connection back to every kind of technology that people have become afraid of or disappointed in before. And so understanding the debate around nuclear technology and the first wave of techno-skepticism that comes after the First World War is, is really essential in order to understand, for example, the writings of Shosana Subov. It is one of the explanations, I think, for why techno-critics never feel that they're obliged to give alternatives. Because it's it's sort of in if you're criticizing a technology like the atom bomb, you're not going to say I think we should have a smaller atom bomb or I think yeah. we should use atom bombs only over here. Uh, it's just you can just criticize the technology without providing any kind of optionality around what to do instead, and that has persisted in what I think is a less constructive way in a lot of the techno criticism that we have today. On the car example, I I, so I, I think the car example is interesting in in a couple of different ways, but I think it's interesting. Actually, because one of the models I see popping up more and more in critical literature is this notion of externalities. Mm. Um, and so when you look at a car, it has clear externalities in terms of its environmental damage and sort of its pollution. And, and there are a lot of people now um, comparing misinformation to pollution and saying that just as we tax polluters, we should tax people who enable fake news and misinformation. Uh, the notion being that this is this is sort of destroying some kind of commons in the same way that the car pollution destroyed the, the environment. And so I, I'm, I'm, what, what happened there historically and philosophically was the construction of this notion of the environment as something that we should all own, protect. And, and we, we didn't have this idea of the environment before as, as crisply. And it's been chronicled by many different people who write in the history of ideas. I wonder what it is that we're sort of developing now as this protective thing that we don't want technology to erode. That is, to the information technology as the environment was to the car, as pollution was to the car. What's the sort of common thing, yeah. the thing that we're trying to protect? What, what so do you I think? Yeah, I think the thing that comes up most frequently is sort of politics and the political sphere. So in a way, in a sense, the 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 democratic environment is the thing that uh, I think people see as being fundamentally threatened in the same way that a polluting car. So if we if we want to yeah extend this analogy, then you know I love to extend my analogy, but you know the, <laughs> the, the polluting car was destroying the natural environment. It was very attractive. Uh, it produced all sorts of benefits. But again, you know, long term, we look at it and go, oh, crikey, uh, should we have allowed that to happen? And I think that I get echoes of that in what people are saying about the information space online. Uh, back to that quote I made earlier, you know, it, as long as this stuff is circulating, can you have a true uh, functioning democracy? So I think there's almost a sense that the, the, the political environment, the democratic environment is fundamentally threatened by the pollution of certain forms of information. Uh, and, and leading to the view of again, I mean, is it interesting. It, it, you know, are these things so fundamentally incompatible? And if they're fundamentally incompatible, you've got to choose one or the other. Which one are you going to plump for? Do you want the Do you want the technology um, at at risk? Of, and again, I, I'm perhaps more optimistic about democratic structures. I, I don't think they necessarily continue in the same way forever, but they will find a way to evolve. Probably where I'm coming from says they evolve into a new, a different form of democratic structure than before. It's got to work differently, um, by which I mean things like the you know the central points of control, the political parties. That there's a whole there's a whole sort of uh, machinery of democracy that we're used to. Uh, uh, you can undo that machinery and replace it with something else and still be democratic. Just 
differently democratic. Whereas yeah. I think uh, for some of the critics, they would say, you know, the political environment sort of depends on that machinery being in place. If the technology threatens it, then the machinery breaks. Once the machinery is broken, the democracy is broken. So perhaps that's the bit to zero in on. I'd say, I think it is the, to take that car analogy, it's the political environment being threatened by this new technology. Uh, and the way that, that that sort of manifests itself is that the machinery of politics that we've been used to is being broken mm. by the way in which the, the more open, uh, more um, subversive internet platforms work. It's such a rich analogy, and there's so much you could do with it. I mean, if you're a technology professional and you want to understand partly how this works out, then you can also understand the dynamics of it. And and it it, it sort of makes me think that if you go back to the 70s when the entire environmental debate started and we had our sort of first glimpses of, of what environmental activism looked like, etc., you, you had a couple of key moments and I think key texts that influenced that time. And you had this book called The Limits to Growth, um, that was essentially saying that you can't have economic growth because the environment will go away and and sort of criticizing industrialism, the use of cars, use of airplanes, all that stuff was essentially saying this technological progress is stopping social progress. Again, decoupling the two. There's a really strong set of examples of this in the 70s where, where sort of exactly the same thing happens. And I, I think it's really interesting to think about what is the limits of growth uh, for information technology, which is that uh, what kinds of books are we seeing now that we will look back at as we look back at limits of growth now? We see we see limits of growth as a useful, I think, clarion call, but also as a as sort of a, an, an, a perhaps overly pessimistic view of what mankind would be able to do. So yeah. is there, and, and there's hope in that, right? Yeah. I mean, I think there are, there are probably two, um, two sec- sections of the tech sector where I, I think these questions will be particularly relevant this year. I'm, I'm not, I, I'm not convinced that we're going to roll back in terms of information sharing, so social media type stuff. I mean, it, you know, people sharing, uh, different forms of content, uh, video content, all of this sort of stuff. In a sense, that's not completely revolutionary. It's stuff that we did before. We're just doing it. More of us are doing it more or cheaply than ever before, and and uh, uh, we're sharing different stuff from before. But there are two two sort of potential revolutions I think happening uh, right now. One is around finance, uh, where where um, you know all of these discussions that we've talked a little bit about before but these conversations around cryptocurrencies and things like that that that's a revol- i mean a true revolution the sense that that could end up um creating a, an utterly different structure for the way in which money works from the structure that existed before could do might 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 not but i think that's one of the areas where people will be asking rightly this question of is that technology going too far uh do we want to be dependent on a technology perhaps that we don't even fully understand for something that's so fundamental uh, to our livelihoods, literally to our livelihoods as the money in our pockets. So there'd be a whole sort of questions there. So questions there. And then I think the second one is this metaverse question, which, uh, and again, this, this week's news, you saw um, Microsoft uh, paying huge amounts of money uh, for um, Activision, the, the gaming company, and, and that sort of predicate on the fact that they want a piece of this metaverse thing that, uh, the company formerly known as Facebook has staked its claim to by rebranding itself with the word meta and all this. So so I think the other area that is truly revolutionary is this this sort of open question about whether we are going to not, not spend time on the internet, but in the internet. Um, are we all going to shift into an environment in which we 
you know, almost literally you don't go physically on holiday. You have a holiday you know, from your bedroom uh, in your head, as it were. And that's the sort of premise of the metaverse is that you are you're substituting sort of physical uh, interaction for online interaction in a, in a much more profound way than than I think is true today. So those are the two areas where I'd say really interesting questions, I think, right now of you know, do we want to limit the technology? In the case of the money bit, I actually think that's largely a government decision because uh, governments control existing uh, mechanisms of money. And so does government want to allow that to evolve, the technology to evolve, or is government going to put a rein on it? The metaverse one, I think, actually is much more about consumers. It's about us as humans, whether whether we end up wanting to go there as obviously the technology companies are betting we will or whether we will perhaps taste it and not like it and want to come back from it but there's about two areas where i think that big question uh, is it too far are being asked i think the other ones to say the sort of video and social media and stuff like that this year is a year when we're expecting it to be regulated but i don't think again i don't think we're we're turning it off, or uh, I think what we're doing is kind of placing it within a more orderly framework. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and, and it raises another interesting question. I think those are two really good examples of, of new uses of technology that are not necessarily being held back by the tech clash. I mean, you could argue, and I read an article to this effect uh, some months back that I thought was quite interesting. There's, there's, you talk about the tech clash everywhere in news media and in policy circles, but you see it nowhere in technology usage statistics. Yeah. So there's no one who stops using their computers, no one who sort of who stops buying a phone. So so what does that mean? There's no real statistical evidence of less usage of technology. You could probably not even find massive changes in usage patterns that people go from one service to another because it's designed in a I mean, I don't think that you're you're seeing tons of fewer people um, use social media, for example. I see. I think you see a constant pickup of social media across the board. So, so it's a this weird phenomenon where you sort of you you know that there's a the tech clash feels real, right? We have this debate, we have this discussion, we have this this ongoing um, examination of the externalities of technology, really digging into it, but we're changing nothing that we do. And in fact, we're using technology more and more and we're developing deeper and deeper. And, and even if, if, I mean, even if you were to say to me, yes, but Web3, uh, which seems to be something people say to me a lot these days, uh, I would say, well, perhaps, but it's such a minor marginal phenomenon right now that I'm not entirely sure that that counts as an index of tech clash. So yeah. what's going on here? Yeah, so I think there are two... There are two um possible there's sort of two variants to to, to the tech lash bit so if you if you if tech lash says oh i think there's a problem here um and x needs to be done but x could be and we need to hold the technology back and i say i think that may be relevant for things like uh financial some of the financial instrument developments actually for ai is another area where a view may be taken that you know certain areas should just not be developed in terms of AI that there may be a decision to hold back so that's sort of one variant which is let's hold the technology back the other one is uh, there's a problem here and the solution is for us to control this thing more and so to I think the areas you said that are still growth areas I'm not sure anyone is seriously like contemplating turning off social media or turning off video 
platforms or or stopping the online retailers from doing their stuff what they are saying is we we want to control this and we want a piece of the action um uh, you know there, there may be some at the margins who say look that the answer is to you know get rid of the amazons and things like that but actually i think it's more um more mainstream to be saying no what we need to do is make sure amazon makes the same contribution that a traditional retailer would have made society that there we need to have more controls over how these you know large e-commerce platforms work we're not going to turn them off and not least because as you point out with their um, voters and electorates that's not going to be the most popular option in the world uh, an interesting one where we've perhaps seen this play out was the the whole uber uh, debate where you know, Uber was at the sharp end of uh, revolutionising from their point of view the way in which um, taxi ride-hailing services work, and we've actually seen, you know, a lot of efforts to kind of hold them back. They've generally stayed in the market, generally, um, but they've been brought more and more into a framework where they're required, for example, to give in the UK now they have to give their drivers employee rights. They're, they're sort of brought into the system. They're brought into the framework rather than being uh, stopped altogether. So maybe that's a, the, the, the Uber model is quite an interesting one to see a, a scenario where there was a really concerted effort to push back and it's moved from in most cases, let's stop this to let's build it into a, uh, a framework where it's more on an uh, even footing, a level footing with uh, other existing providers. Yeah, and then I think you point to something interesting, and that is that even if usage is increasing, and even if you see more and more people using the existing services and the existing technology, which seems to indicate that that there is not a uh, an acute tech clash against the technology we have, there is a question about the technology we could get. Yeah. the technology we could develop and and that brings us to to one of the arguments that both you and i have been guilty of of of, of um uh, i think uh, articulating and that is that many a time when somebody has suggested a regulation that i thought was less helpful i have been known to say things like but that will harm innovation Yes, uh, and it's so interesting to me to study how that argument has evolved over time. It used to be a time, you know, back in the '90s, where you could say that will harm innovation, and people go like, "Oh, okay, you're right. We should rethink yeah. this." If you say now this will harm innovation, people will go like, "How much?" Yes, yes, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and and it's like it's it's a I, I mean. It's so interesting. What's going on there? I think. I mean, it comes down to money. I think, in in the sense that when you are arguing successfully to say this will harm innovation, and people went, "Oh, I better be careful." I think there was an underlying assumption that the innovation would be good for your country, both good for sort of individual wealth and also for government wealth. That innovation means more tax revenue and more personal uh, uh, income. And we want to be at the forefront of innovation was the view. So yes, you go in as a policy person and go, do do you want uh, Britain to be the most innovative place in the world? Of course we do, because innovation means money. And now when you go in and say innovation, a lot of them are thinking, oh, you mean so that... um, say a particular American company can suck more of the wealth out of my country whilst providing very little in terms of return, you know, not not just not providing return, but damaging businesses that already exist. And so, again, the, the e-commerce one would be an example, which I actually think is misplaced because a lot of the investment and, and uh, is in the countries and actually 
a lot of those e-commerce providers are taking very small margins. And by taking smaller margins than the people that they've replaced, they are actually leaving more money in people's pockets. But it doesn't feel like that. <laughs> what it feels like is, you know, that the, the, this uh, uh, innovative business has come in and my people are poorer and my government is poorer. And so the tax thing is critical. Where the companies are headquartered is critical. And who the winners and losers are is seen as critical. So maybe that's really what it boils down to, that innovation uh, is fine as long as you're the winners from the innovation. And if you perceive yourself as being a loser from the innovation at a national level, as a policymaker, then you're, you're going to resist it. Uh, and that's, I think, yeah. the primary money. Money is uh, often at the root of these debates, but in, a, <laughs> in, in quite a kind of meaningful way, it's, it's about whether or not you're going to benefit from that innovation or whether others are going to benefit from it. I also think that there's like a conceptual shift here because I remember reading The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen uh, late in the 90s and thinking this is really important. Disruptive innovation is, is key to understanding how technology markets work. And, and you know, there were all of these quotes from famous tech gurus. I think uh, Apple Steve Jobs said that, um, of course, I'm going to disrupt myself so that nobody else disrupt my business. When he, he noted that the iPhone would disrupt the business of the iPod, but he was fine with that because otherwise somebody else would come along and eat his lunch. Disruptive innovation was, was sort of really hailed as a positive word. If you say disruptive innovation today, you're almost, you're, I think you're pretty much exactly identifying the kind of innovation people don't want. They don't want innovation that rocks the boat, but that's the nature of innovation, right? Nature yeah. of innovation is that it it is a... It sounds great because it's innovation, it's like new things happening, but it is really, if you look at it more closely with an economic lens, it's closely related to and flows from Yusuf Schumpeter's creative destruction. Something needs to be destroyed for something new to take its place. And, and that sort of brutal truth about innovation is something I think more and more people are, are uncomfortable with. And I, I, I think also that that's, that's fascinating because it then leads to an actual question about uh, the, the sort of the patterns the effects, the impacts of the tech clash. Do we believe that innovation has slowed down as an effect of the change in the way that people view technological progress? Hmm. I mean, I, I'm not sure it's slowed down. I don't, I don't see people sort of being less inventive. Um, but I think the patterns are changing as to, to where they are. I remember... I remember um, in, uh, criticism, you know, when the when the companies like the ones that you and I used to work for, the the Googles and the Facebooks were uh, arose that it, there'll be criticism that you know you take the world's greatest brain, brains and the best uh, engineers and you set them to work figuring out how you can get someone to click on an advertisement. Uh, you know, <laughs> the fact that that was ouch, ouch, <laughs> but, but in a sense it was kind of it was true that you know the 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 companies have the deepest pockets and they could do the most innovative stuff. And I I think to a certain extent like that we shouldn't be looking for innovation in the same space some of these things are built now you know e-commerce platforms resource sharing platforms social media platforms uh, uh, those are kind of built so i think the pace is going to slow sort of necessarily because you've got all the building blocks in place a, lot, a bit like you know when you develop something like the automobile in the first uh, uh, sort of few years uh, you're coming up with wildly different designs at a certain point you settle on the design it's got four wheels and, and a chassis like this and now we're all going to build variants on that theme so I think in in terms of those a lot of those core services we're not seeing necessarily wild innovation but in some of these other areas we are 
uh, and it may be less visible actually to the consumer right now where that innovation is happening. It's no surprise that things like crypto are you know bubbling uh, at the moment. They're really hot. There's all sorts of stuff happening, and and it does get. Uh, uh, badged up in all sorts of different ways but I think we should be candid there are people doing you know some of the best brains are working in that space AI is another one where you know we're just in the foothills now we're seeing what might come out of that Um, these questions some of the questions around you know how we would um, operate in these virtual spaces again like again I've said it before there's no surprise that that meta or Facebook want to rebrand as meta because that is a space that, that where there is I think much more scope for innovation than there was in the you know we run a website that shares information between people kind of space um, so I think it would be a mistake to think the innovation's gone away but I think it has gone out of if you just look at the established services you'll see less of it uh, and where it is maybe less visible. But that's partly because of uh, of all of the ex- uh, these, these curves that everyone thought, uh, sometimes myself included, were exponential curves are really the kinds of curves that are called S-curves, where they sort of yeah. they flatten out at the end. And, and when you're at the end of the S-curve, um, then you build another S-curve on top of that. And that's, that's more like how technological development works than that it's an eternal uh, exponential curve, you know, Pass uh, Ray Kurzweil, who believes that they're all exponentials. <laughs> yeah. But but I, I think that the, um, it, it makes the question even more acute <clears throat> because if that's the case, innovation is not slowing down. We don't see any change in usage patterns. Then it's really uh, uh, increasingly an enigma to me what the what what is what is tech clash then really affecting? Which brings me to to a question. You used an analogy that I really liked in our last conversation on planning, where we talked about the the importance of policy people being able to predict the weather. To have a sense of what the weather will actually be, and and then you know within what they can say with their weather prediction, what they also would like to be able to do, and how you can prepare and bring an umbrella, and how you might want to plan your party when it's sunny and not raining, and there's all kinds of things like that. But you have to get a sense of the weather, which is the the sort of the the political changes happening on the ground in parliament being debated. But on there's like a distinction here between weather and climate. And to a certain extent, it feels like the tech clash is more of a climate thing. So, so as a te- as a policy person, how would you predict the climate in the debate? Do you think the tech clash is is uh, worsening, or is it like a, a you know is is this a, a global tech clash scenario where it's all going to be plus two degrees? And how, so how does I, that work? I actually wonder if. Um... Tech clash isn't actually weather, and climate is still moving firmly in the direction of uh, technology. And again, this week, uh, the Microsoft Activision takeover, there's quite a lot of commentary going, isn't it extraordinary that Microsoft, which was the the evil empire that had to be, you know, there was a tech clash against Microsoft way back when, and it had to sort of have its wings clipped. And now, 20-odd years on, 25 years on, uh, it's seen as a sort of stable uh, pillar of American industry. It's worth an absolute fortune, more than all the Googles and Facebooks. Uh, uh, I think Apple is the only company that's worth more than it in this space. Uh, and uh, again, another old company. Uh, so these old companies, Apple and Microsoft, uh, that started up in the 70s, are now super well-established, actually quite uncontroversial, uh, worth a lot of money, and delivering a lot of the technology that we use every day. And I don't, I wonder, I mean, that's the climate. That tells me that the climate has been pretty favorable towards technology. And so if I had to make a bet, it would be that, that this is a storm, the, the current tech lash against the online services, the Google's, 
meta type stuff it is more of a storm and that the long-term climate says as long as they play their cards right they'll end up like microsoft they'll be delivering services they'll be boring i mean microsoft went through a phase where it was evil and then it went through a phase where it was sort of boring and kicked around a little bit and reputationally not not at all seen as uh, a hot property so i think they might get into a boring phase um but you know do i think that we're not going to be using a lot of this technology these companies deliver in 20 years time no um i, th- I think they, they will be there so the say the tech lash is uh is a is a moment rather than I think representing a long term trend in terms of those those established technologies shall I say which are the ones that have attracted attention and either you know content e commerce all of those kind of established things uh, maybe a different set of questions to say for some of the new technologies that are still in gestation right now yeah so so a storm that you can weather and on the other side of that storm you're going to come out and if you play your cards right you will be boring but profitable. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a it's an interesting. I think I mean there's a lot of truth to that life cycle, right? There's there are ways that you can get through this. We we I think we talked sometime a long time ago about the life cycle of a technology company, which is that it it starts with this honeymoon of the entrepreneur when it's cute and cuddly and everyone wants to be with it. Then it goes into the long dark night of antitrust, which is this period where it's searching for its soul and everyone's trying to understand what it is and it's it's really it's really wandering in the desert. And after that, it it can sort of evolve in two different ways. It can either die into the thermodynamic heat death of consultancy, <laughs> where yeah. it just adds more and more people and margins shrink, or it can be a persistent innovator like Microsoft or Intel, I think, is another example of a persistent innovator that continues to innovate and just continues to grow. But it's passed through some kind of crucible, some kind of test almost, a social test that then allows us to just sort of go on. It, should we see the tech clash as a sort of a a rite of passage for for yeah. this industry, for this wave of technology? Yeah, I mean, I think you said earlier that it's posed some useful and challenging questions. So I think part of the right of passage, those questions are posed that, that the, you know, it's a, a sort of reset moment from the uh, will sort of grow at any pace. The, the famous move fast and break things will just kind of grow at any pace as this reset moment where they've got to start behaving sort of more corporate and more traditionally corporately. There's a reset moment on things like taxes, which you discussed elsewhere, all of these sort of things. There's going to be a reset moment in terms of uh, responsibility for content standards. The content standards, I'm not sure, are going to fundamentally change, but they will be owned by government regulators or there'll be shared ownership between platforms and government regulators rather than you know, sole ownership of the standards by uh, platforms that has been today. So a whole bunch of sort of reset things that will take place. There may be... Um, well, I, I certainly think they're going to be prevented from acquiring much more. Uh, there's still an open question about whether um, services are actually going to be broken up, but certainly they're 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 going to have to consolidate because acquisitions are going to get harder and harder for them because they get more and more scrutiny over them. Um, so I think that's the phase we're going through. So it is a coming of age moment, going from you know uh, awkward teenager. Uh, maybe they've grown out of that already. Awkward teenager into their uh, sort of u- university years, where they're still a bit wild, into kind of sedate middle age. Um, so there's a sort of it's, it's, it's not your uh, uh, bar mitzvah. It's not your like teenage rite of passage. It's a twenty something rite of passage where you're going into the big bad you know uh, world of family and work and uh, more sedate activities. So I think that's why. 
and I, I love that point because I, I do remember, I mean, amongst the most, so not, well, I guess amongst the most difficult years that I remember in my life personally were the, the years between um, when you sort of, you had started that university and done one or two years and then you weren't really sure what to do. So between 22 and say 25, you were really, you were really lost yeah. <laughs> in the sense that you were sort of, who am I? Where am I? What is this? What should I be doing with my life? Kind of thing, and that that does seem to resonate with with this whole entire tech clash thing. But it it raises another interesting question that I think uh, a lot of policy people face, and that is, okay, so we have this this tech clash that is not affecting usage, not slowing down innovation, but it is a moment for us to reflect, and it is this moment where it's sort of a a, a way to find ourselves where sort of long dark night of the soul is also about identifying your own beliefs right so it is that how how do you deal with the rest of the internal stakeholders in a company when they read this enormously scathing article about what you're doing as a company or you know they go to you and say we have to respond to this we have to you know push back etc what you're saying is sort of no quietly lean into this get out on the other side and become boring and corporate because that's the way to success. Do not prolong this period when you're wandering into the desert and living on student loans. For God's sake, man, get a job and get a haircut and shape up and sort of. So, how how should policy people think about communicating the tech clash internally to their stakeholders who are going to feel attacked and upset and feel that this is not a an accurate reflection of who we are? Yeah, I mean, the answer is be more boring. <laughs> you put your finger on it. And actually, there's there's a really interesting um, sort of laboratory for this right now in China, where where the government have said to their tech companies, you know, we insist that you're boring and you, you've even got to go and take some of your chief executives and and sort of park them in a box somewhere and not allow them to speak because they're they're too interesting and they're they're too they're too much of a personality. So so there's a sort of you know, in China, there's a there's a, a government mandated attempt to make tech companies boring. Uh, I think in in the US, it's more of a, a market and activist driven, particularly activist sort of driven attempt to make tech companies become more boring. Uh, um, but I think that is the answer. That's where they're going to go. It's interesting again in terms of personalities that. Um, and now Meta is a kind of pretty much an exception in terms of still having its very sort of high profile big name CEO or founder as the CEO, whereas uh, we've even seen Twitter turnover now. And you actually stop a member of the public in the street and you say, you know, who are the CEOs of you know, Google and Twitter and Microsoft? And they'll probably get all three names wrong. <laughs> They're going to say to you. You know, if they know Larry Page and Bill Gates and Sergey Brin <laughs> and Jack Dorsey, yeah, if if they are following the tech companies, they're not going to sort of name the current CEOs. Um, so it's really interesting that part of part of that sort of boringness uh, is is about tamping everything down and and becoming less interesting. So I think that's where we go. I'm I'm not sure that's going to wash with people inside a company to say you get rid of your high profile CEO. Well, that's not kind of arguable, but, but it's <laughs> but it's uh, though. It's a it's a know, great. Tr- to try to make i mean if you should be brave <laughs> oh, yeah. i don't yes. know that so it's fine i can say, I can say but, yes, but, uh, yes. but there's something about the the dullness and it's also it's things like um you know not picking fights uh so again interestingly i've looked at this with um you know we've been in these situations where something blows up and there's policy people 
uh, well, your first instinct, you know, as a company, is not just the policy people, the policy people at the sharp end of a company that wants to pick a fight. Um, uh, whereas, you know, the boring version is to say, okay, you said jump, you know, which way do you want me to jump? How high do you want me to jump? But I'll jump not like jumping that's stupid why am i jumping and actually i've noticed this in in again particularly you look at the way some of the chinese companies operate and and i think it reflects their own uh, local environment they are much more inclined if the government says you know i want you to do x they're more inclined to say fine like we're not going to make a fuss we're not going to fight it whereas there was something i think particularly strongly in the silicon valley culture that said we're going to fight um Mm. and i think that you know, that's when you see a company decide to become boring. Microsoft went from, you know, uh, and again, younger listeners will not remember this, but Microsoft was, Bill Gates was sitting in the hot seat in congressional committees, and they were the ones, you know, who were fighting back desperately against the government. Um, and they changed, you know, uh, I'm not going to say overnight, because there was a process for change for them, and they had the scars as well. But at a certain point, they changed to to being the servant of government, if you can describe it that way, and all of their stance, their approaches, you know, government. The work they presence, the work they do. I think, and, and I think that also actually points back to something you mentioned before. We talked about the car. If you look at, you know, how how did how did the companies of that time, the car companies, the oil companies, the energy companies, deal with the green revolution and the activism and the 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 sort of let's call it the the car back to, backlash or the yeah. oil backlash. Well, the, the answer is really interesting. I think that a lot of what they did was to be boring. And they asked a really good question: is how are you best boring? And the answer to that question is you need to find an external yardstick that you can all agree to and a standard you can adhere to. And what you end up with is this this profoundly demoralizing world in which what a policy team does is that it takes first page issues that are plaguing the company and turns them into investor relation page checklists. Mm. If you can do that, if you can sort of take your first page issues and turn them into a question of compliance, then at that point you've succeeded in handling your political challenges and you can go forth be boring and profitable, and continue to be a persistent innovator. So this notion of a policy team as a mechanism that produces investor relation checklists out of first page issues is is sort of exaggerated, of course, but but there's some truth to that. And it points to to a really sort of interesting follow-up question to you is, what what are the mechanisms of being boring? Not picking a fight is one, seeking a standard or an external yardstick is another. How how are you best boring? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, to that point, this, this external Yarsic thing, I think, is important. You shift from defending what you see to be the interests of the internet, your sector, to defending the interests of your company. And so if hmm. in the early days, you know, people would see themselves as champions of the internet. The internet must be free. Government must have hands off. We, we talked about the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace as a whole. You know, you filthy governments, you know, keep your hands off our thing. You move from that uh, to saying, well, what's in the interest of my company? Well, what's in the interest of my company is that all of us are regulated in the same way in the internet sector. So we kind of now almost don't worry too much whether you regulate the internet a lot or a little or in blue or in pink. As long as everybody has to be blue or pink, then my company can be fine. And then we'll think about how we're positioned against the other people in the sector. But we're not defending the internet we're defending Meta or Google or whoever. 
uh, and which is quite a different, I think, sort of, sort of approach and quite a different psychology. And that's that's where it, in a sense, sort of gets boring <laughs> to an extent because we're now not picking fights of principle. We're looking at like the mechanics of uh, jockeying for position in a market. You know, when you bring in this this particular regulation, are the compliance costs for me disproportionate to the compliance costs for everyone else? Um, and then a lot of your argumentation is make sure everyone has the same compliance costs. So you want, you know, in the automotive sector, when they bring in an emissions regulation, it's like, fine, and we'll all stick catalytic converters on. But I just want to make sure that nobody else, none of my competitors gets away with not putting the catalytic converter on, and then we're all going to be okay. Um, so mm. it's that, I think, quite a, it's quite a profound shift, actually, from sort of thinking of yourself as a champion for a particular technology and, and making government you know, pushing back on government to keep their hands off that that technology as a class, with your company as one representative of it, to think of yourself as defending your company, uh, uh, their position in the market, and in that case, just as you described it, it then becomes much more about what are our compliance costs relative to everyone else, what's our position in the market relative to everyone else, rather than here's a big issue of principle that I'm going to stand on where I think government shouldn't you know be regulating us at all. And ties back to the conversation we had about how how really vital and vibrating farmers' markets turn into pharma markets, right? So yes. the, the end question at that sort of chain of reasoning is, of course, if we all have the same compliance cost, is there a way that I can help my country turn those compliance costs into entry barriers in better ways than the others? And so you build this structure where you have a core of a few companies and then a wide sets of, uh, sphere outside of the core of smaller innovative companies that are bought or licensed when they come up with something because they can't get into the core because of the entry barriers in the shape of compliance costs. It's, it, it sort of ties together, that model ties together. But it, I sort of feel that we're now on, on the sort of dark side of the force saying that you should turn first page in- issues into checklists on your investor relations page and you should make sure that, that everyone has to suffer the same level of pain. And then you should take that pain and you should nurse that pain and make it into an entry barrier that makes it impossible for anyone else to, to that's a very, we should give me optimism, Richard. Yeah. I want to feel good about what I'm, you know, about our craft. How, uh, how... Yeah, I think you, well, so, so I just think, again, I mean, almost literally if, if you're, if you're, um, uh, if, if the question is, you know, how can you, uh, um, uh, advance the interests of a particular company in the market in the context of all of this technology everything going on. I think honestly that is the the right strategy. Now, at, for you as an individual, if you're interested in the internet more broadly, and I hope you are, if you've gone to work for a, a tech company, I think there are plenty of other uh, opportunities to debate these things, and they're not closed issues. I think in a sense, it's almost you're moving it from being a a kind of industry-led debate you're moving into space where it's a politically-led debate and so again i'm almost arguing to say look you you can uh, uh debate the issues of principle but you're going to debate them in a different context and that context is going to be the classic battle of ideas between political parties in the country uh as opposed to it being something between you know uh, tech companies and the government is is going to shift into the debate between the political forces in a, a country and i think there's plenty more mileage there uh to our you know where we started this discussion around things like innovation i think i think there is a political debate for a country about 
the extent to which it is going to take risks in the name of innovation, the extent to which it is going to welcome creative destruction, perhaps, of its old industries. I just don't think that the tech companies themselves are going to have a particularly big voice in that debate. So maybe that's the, the debates are happening. It's just that tech companies are not necessarily entitled to the same amount of voice as they used to have, I think, in these discussions. I don't know if that's careful or not. Yeah, kind of. I have to be honest, but I think I think there's also this notion that if you're the object of the debate, you're going to be much less powerful than if you're a participant in yeah. the debate. And perhaps you can be a participant in the debate if you move into being as boring as possible, so you're no longer the object of the debate, and yeah. then you will be able to change things. I mean, I'd, I'd give kudos to the Microsoft folks because I think they've been quite good at at that transition into yes. discussing big and important things that that have to do with international treaties on on you know law enforcement access, et cetera. So there's, there's, there's at least some hope in being able to more freely participate in the discussion when you're not the object of it. Yeah. So here, here we are, the, the rep, former representatives of these cutting-edge internet industries concluding our discussion on innovation and everything that means by saying, perhaps we're all going to be Microsoft and that's a good thing. <laughs> so, uh, and so, on that note... <laughs> Well, you know, I, I sort of think that they really, they're, they're a clever bunch. Anyway, so um, so uh, you can find this podcast on your website, which is? www.regulate.tech. And um, you will hear more from us in our next episode. So stay tuned. And thank you so much for listening. Keep your ideas, your comments, your questions coming. And we will certainly pick up any subject that you think is interesting. Thank you so much for listening.